I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a panel on connection and community through technology that was first presented this time last year in May of 2020 at the Psychology of Global Crises conference hosted by American University Paris. For more about this conference, you can listen to Rendering Unconscious podcast episode number 98 where doctors Irene Strasser and Martin Dega discuss the Psychology of Global Crisis Conference and their podcast, Crisis Talk. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Tripart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. For video of this episode, please follow the link accompanying this episode. This video is hosted on the Psychology of Global Crises YouTube channel. To search for it, just search for hashtag PGC2020. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Vanessa23Carl, that's vanessa 23 C-A-R-L. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters. Your support is so appreciated. For more, you can check out my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Welcome. I'll just say a little bit about the panel and then we'll get started. My name is Vanessa Sinclair, by the way, and I'm a psychologist and psychoanalyst um, based in Stockholm. During this time of global crisis, it's more important than ever to build community. While internet relations, social media specifically, can often resemble paranoid schizoid communication, we must be active in our activism and not allow corporate and government structures to sweep in and implement their own strategies towards their own ends. While often used as a tool of surveillance and misinformation, the internet also allows for new forms of connection. Committed to creating spaces where a range of voices and viewpoints may be heard, how may we work so as to not have ideas censored by a small group of self-appointed authority figures deciding who is and is not allowed to speak. As therapeutic interactions have necessarily moved online, we consider the history of teletherapy and shift in thinking about digital psychology over time, from the chatbot as parody to the virtual human therapist, 
as well as the expanded outreach the virtual sphere provides, allowing us to facilitate psychoanalytic and psychotherapeutic services, mentorship, and supervision to persons of varying abilities in various locations on a sliding scale. Not suggesting the virtual replace the material, but rather considering it an added tool. And now Hannah Zevens going to introduce the first speaker. It's my great pleasure to introduce Jacob Johansson, who's a senior lecturer in communications at St. Mary's University uh, in London in the UK. He's the author of the superb book, Psychoanalysis and Digital Culture, uh, which came out last year from Rutledge. His research interests include social media, psychoanalysis, and digital media and new media. Please welcome Jacob. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to share my screen. Okay. So um, the title of my talk is uh, Social Media and COVID-19, a Paranoid Schizoid Pandemic. And um, if uh, you're kind of interested in reading um, a bit about what I'm going to say, this talk is also kind of based on a, a recent short um, piece that I published on Medium, which you can see here. So um, it's also kind of available in written form. Um so one of the kind of um, things that really uh, struck me when kind of thinking about um, this situation that we're in now, this kind of state that we're in now, and, and uh, reading about the pandemic, reading about coronavirus sort of in the media, and kind of listening to uh, people's conversations and, and, and what, what people were saying and so on, um, where there were kind of two responses to this in a way. Uh, one um, is about kind of uh, everything is going to change now. Everything uh, um, uh, is going to change because of this virus um, to, to such a radical kind of degree that the world is never going to be the same again. The, the, the Once we're kind of out of this uh, situation, the world will be a radically different world, a kind of new world. Um, and then the other kind of response, um, maybe kind of a response to this first one, or the kind of commentary that, that, that I read, was where people were kind of saying, that, that, that's, all, that's all not true, or that's all nonsense, you know, everything is going to be more or less the same, nothing, nothing is going to change, we're all going to, uh, we all kind of come out of this and, and, and everything kind of will be back to normal, normal life will kind of resume. Um, and I thought that was, that was quite an interesting um, way of, of kind of making sense of our situation and it also let me kind of then to think about um, how are these kind of two sort of positions and, and other other kind of kind of narratives in relation to COVID, how are they um, posted online, how are they kind of communicated on, on online and on social media um, and, and uh, what kind of tone, what kind of emotions are kind of conveyed. Uh, through through these posts, um, and what I'm kind of uh, going to be looking at in my uh, presentation um, is to kind of make sense of this as as a form of splitting. So so the the, the kind of argument that I make and I kind of bring in a particular psychoanalytic concept to um, kind of 
uh, underscore this argument a little bit relates to splitting and that um, how um, many of us um, kind of talk about uh, uh, COVID online is also a kind of occurs in a kind of in a kind of split split way. Um, and this is this is um, probably not a coincidence because the world itself seems kind of split. This this was kind of one of the first things that kind of occurred to me as we kind of all sort of found ourselves in this crisis now is that the world is now kind of divided. It's 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 split. It's kind of cut along particular um, sort of lines along particular borders, along particular groups, along networks, along kind of um, bubbles and and kind of um, uh, dividers and so on, where populations are essentially divided, uh, and and in many cases, populations are even more divided because they were they were kind of divided before as well, um, split and kind of divided in, along. Uh, those that are unhealthy and healthy, or those that are kind of recovered uh, 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 or, or haven't recovered from the virus, um, those that may be more at risk, or those that may be not 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 really at risk, those who are young, those who are old, uh, those who are vulnerable, not vulnerable, and and ultimately those who are uh, alive and those who are dead. Um, and this kind of this this kind of split. Uh, of the world is also then kind of mirrored and is kind of picked up, um, of course, in how people talk about this, how people experience this this kind of split, uh, and is kind of carried over. It's brought online. Um, and and uh, the, the kind of second part of this presentation, I'll look a little bit more at the kind of technological side of social media because I argue that th those kind of splitting tendencies are actually really, really amplified by the technology of social media platforms themselves. Um, this kind of split world that we are kind of now in, of course, it also kind of articulates itself in a sort of online-offline split that we see, where um, for many it's been very effortless. They have kind of moved everything online. They are kind of working from home. There's, there, was, there was no kind of rupture for them. Uh, but, of course, there are many others who cannot... Uh, do that, who, whose jobs can't just be kind of um, uh, uh, moved online or uh, how also kind of people now relate to each other through kind of virtual means. Uh, it's very interesting, kind of brings brings up um, Sherry Turkle's work, um, who kind of draws on psychoanalysis. And back in 2011, she kind of made the argument that we are already alone together, that we are already, that technology has kind of alienated us so much that we are kind of alone together, um, but then, then others have also kind of said maybe we are um, now kind of together alone, where kind of uh, uh, technology facilitates kind of kind of feelings of togetherness in, 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 in a kind of virtual way. Um, so the kind of, the kind of um, uh, concept that I'll, that I'll kind of uh, uh, very briefly kind of, kind of talk about in this talk is uh, the paranoid schizoid position, because I think it uh, allows us to make a bit more sense of sort of what is going on uh, on social media and, and uh, in those kind of splitting dynamics. Um, this is a concept by uh, the Austrian-British psychoanalyst Melanie Klein, um, who argues that um, the, the, the young child, the infant from kind of um, when they are born up to sort of six months of age, 
they split, they unconsciously split the world, the other, themselves, uh, into binaries, essentially. And, and, and uh, the most kind of underlying binary is good, good and bad. Um, so either things are experienced by the infant as, um, as bad, as threatening, as kind of uh, 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 destructive, as negative, and those, those need to be kind of destroyed in, 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 uh, in response. Um, so, so there is a strong kind of feeling of paranoia, uh, but also of hypochondria, which I thought was quite interesting if we kind of relate it to our sort of present state. Um, and at the same time, uh, the other kind of the other kind of uh, dimension is is idealization. It's kind of it's kind of uh, uh, loving and kind of caring, um, but those kind of um, dynamics are not connected. They are kind of split. Uh, split off so there are good objects and there are kind of bad objects. Um, this this is essentially, as I kind of, kind of said just now, it's an unconscious mechanism, it's a defense mechanism for the young child um, in relation to, to trauma, in relation to anxiety or kind of feelings of, of, of loss, also kind of frustration. Th- those experiences are handled through splitting. And it's a universal um, uh, kind of experience for for, for young children. Um, And they move through this, they kind of move beyond it. But Klein also kind of says this can re-articulate itself in later lives. And those two uh, characters here that I've put uh, uh, up here, Trump is maybe a good example of um, where splitting absolutely kind of fundamentally re-emerges in many of his speeches and so on. Um, so, so this kind of occurs in, in a situation for the infant where there is a kind of um, life and death situation, which, is, which in reality isn't, isn't a situation of life and death, but it's experienced as one. Um, and then at the same time, uh, this splitting is also kind of, if we, if we kind of come, come back to COVID, it's also um, as if the world really is split. Um, so um, we've seen this in, in uh, discussions in the UK in relation to uh, herd immunity or um, recently in, in uh, the breaking of the lockdown rules by um, uh, Dominic Cummings, who's the advisor to, to, to the prime minister. There is a kind of a split where many people think there are rules for some and there are rules for others. There's a kind of double standard here where some people kind of uh, can break the rules and others can't. Um, um, and and uh, this kind of further sort of sort of amplifies uh, this this split uh, that that people experience. Um, now, kind of moving on to social media, um, there are also particular kinds of posts where this splitting uh, tendencies kind of show themselves. So so this was really something I noticed uh, in the kind of when the pandemic just kind of broke out in the West, um, kind of in, in, in sort of March, early April, where there were many posts that is, at least that I, I saw on social media where, where people were kind of saying, this is all just going to get much worse. Um, we are not being told uh, the, the, the whole story here. Um, uh, all the kind of measures are, are being um, sort of done too cautiously. It's, it's, it's too little, it's too late. Um, were really um, very, very kind of emotional and very, very um, understandably, I, I don't kind of mean to critique this necessarily, very understandably, very kind of um, uh, emotional posts were kind of put out where everything was about death 
and 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 kind of um, other sort of sort of elements or kind of life or kind of kind of hope were completely completely gone, completely kind of split off, completely vanished. And and this then of course also um, is is kind of brought to a whole new level through the kind of conspiracy theories that we that we see uh, online, amplified through social media, YouTube, and so on, where um, they they essentially show how kind of paranoid thinking functions, um, and and for psychoanalysis, um, these these kind of ways of dealing with with this kind of situation of dealing with this with this virus uh, are um, ways of kind of um, naming uh, a kind of particular um, causes particular kind of reasons or even even kind of naming things and so far as when someone says this is all inadequate or this is too little too late things are already kind of being named here and this is a sense of kind of relief for the ego it's a sense of kind of kind of mastery that that people can achieve and we all can achieve over something that we cannot really master and we cannot really understand uh, and and kind of control and I think um, this is this is also uh, evident in positive uh, um, uh, posts about this. So, so um, th- this was one I, I saw um, quite a lot in uh, on, on social media as well. It's okay, not to be at your most productive during a fucking global pandemic. Yeah, it's it's fine. And th- this post is very um, it's very benign. It's very caring. It's very you know it's it's quite loving. Uh, it's quite positive. But I think even this post shows a kind of splitting tendency because um, what about those who are kind of productive? What about those who uh, feel very productive now? Um, they are kind of this is sort of split off here. Uh, it, it's, it, it doesn't it doesn't happen. Um, and just to kind of talk a little bit about social media, this uh, sort of tendency, this this kind of uh, splitting tendency is um, only amplified when we think about what social media platforms are, what the kind of big social media platforms are that we use. They are businesses uh, that make money uh, through targeted advertising. So so through kind of um, uh, targeting uh, advertising at individual users based on on the kind of data that they share. Um, And uh, again, this depends on splitting. This depends on the absolute kind of um, eradication of ambivalence or of kind of contradiction, because that doesn't work for kind of advertisers. It doesn't work for marketing. Uh, uh, and this is something that the um, philosopher of technology, Wendy uh, Hui Kyung Chun, has really kind of worked out, I think, uh, in her work where she says networks in, 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 in general, but social media in particular, they are based on what she calls or what she kind of refers to as homophily. So um, the fact that in networks, things are kind of split in so far as uh, individuals are kind of clustered together according to shared characteristics through kind of uh, uh, clusters, through through neighborhoods um, and, and so on. Um, and, and, you know, we just can kind of think of filter bubbles. Yeah, that, that all those kind of mechanisms work in, the, in this way. And Truman is very critical of that because it erases the kind of politics behind networks, it erases discrimination, it erases complexity. Um, and um, I thought this this uh, quote from Helen Kennedy, who writes about data mining and datafication, is also very telling 
um, when she writes about how kind of marketing values are calculated uh, 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 for for users. Um, so for an advertiser, for example, or for, for a kind of social media platform, uh, a user is either uh, target or waste. Yeah? It's either kind of useful or it's not useful for a particular, um, I don't know, marketing campaign. Uh, and it's again, it's a kind of splitting mechanism here. And those splitting mechanisms are technologically, they're kind of coded into the frameworks, coded into the kind of infrastructure that we use. Um, I just need to look at my time. Oh, I need to wrap up. Okay. Um, one kind of very, very, uh, to conclude, um, how can we kind of move beyond this? Um, and for Klein, she, um, as I said, the, 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 the paranoid schizo p p uh, position is momentarily. So the infant moves through it um, and moves to the so-called depressive position. So the depressive position uh, from kind of six months onwards is a way for uh, uh, the infant to kind of um, perceive things in a more complex manner, to um, acknowledge that the world, the, the other and the, the subject, subject herself, the infant herself, is gratifying and frustrating at once. So it's, it's both at the same time. Uh, and there is also a kind of desire to repair uh, here, to kind of make whole again uh, uh, things that have been destroyed even if in only in fantasy, uh, through the through the paranoid schizo um, uh, position, and what does this mean for us? Um, I think um, um, we need to kind of try to acknowledge uh, more that th there is a lot of ambivalence, there is uncertainty, there is the unknown, and there certainly is death and destruction and and all the hopelessness that we face, but there is also hope. <clears throat> And, and love uh, as well. And, and all of this is kind of brought together in the depressive position. Okay, thank you. That, that is my talk. And I am now going to introduce, we can just take maybe like a minute to catch our breath. And I'm going to introduce the next speaker. who is um, Isabel Millar. Isabel Millar um, has recently completed her PhD um, in... I'm just going to stop. Okay. Has recently completed her PhD in psychoanalysis and philosophy at Kingston University uh, School of Art. And her thesis is entitled The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence. Her work uh, concerns the intersection of sex and technology and has appeared in a number of um, uh, publications such as JCFAR, uh, Psychologische Perspektiven, um, Vestigia, Stillpoint magazine, and is also um, um, in Precog magazine in the Paul Grave Lacan series. She's a psychoanalytic script consultant for film and TV and is also a co-editor of Everyday Analysis. Over to you, Isabel. Thank you, Jacob, for that really nice introduction, and thank you for your amazing talk as well. Um, and thank you to the organisers of this really, really exciting gathering. Um, so I'm afraid I don't have any uh, slides. I'm, I'm just going to talk to you. Can everybody hear me? Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So this the title of this paper is "The Coronavirus and the Body: A Crisis of Jouissance." So the coronavirus crisis, this ubiquitous phrase, is the leitmotif of 2020, 
and for how much longer it will persist, nobody knows. But as Alberto Toscano already noted at this conference, the crisis operates in several temporalities at once. The temporality of the state and of the political, dictated and overdetermined, certainly in the US, by electoral time. The epidemiological temporality, the indefinite time of the virus with its waves and peaks and the economic temporality functioning in business cycles and multiple complex financial frameworks. The fourth temporality I would like to add in this brief presentation is the temporality of the body. Because whilst the crisis is undoubtedly one of public health, one of the economy and one of political leadership, in psychoanalytic terms, this is a crisis above all else of jouissance. Despite the heavy criticism levelled at Giorgio Agamben in his application of the state of exception paradigm to the spectacle of the coronavirus, the biopolitical scope of the pandemic is undeniable. With the promise to protect our fragile biological organisms, their life or zoe, we are required and indeed willing to give up the rights and responsibilities which attribute to us our political being, bios. When lockdown began several weeks ago, citizens who had previously experienced an apparent sense of freedom in all domains of their life became suddenly aware of the way in which the state has the power to administer our bodies, to contain them and restrain them, even ostensibly for our own good and for the good of the body politic. The immediate effect of this for many people was a newfound resentment of the restriction of our normal bodily routines and enjoyments. In place of this, various biopolitical remedies were established to make up for the loss of the usual routine. Exercise classes online, lockdown cocking... Well, that was a good slip. Did you hear that? Good. Um, uh, lockdown cooking programmes, game shows, dance routines, and so on and so on. Meanwhile, the gradual increase in surveillance strategies, symptom trackers, and data harvesting was seamlessly incorporated without resistance into the righteous and unquestionable war on COVID-19. For others, this containment and monitoring of the body was not the problem, rather the opposite. For the NHS and key workers who continued business as usual, just to bring us food, collect rubbish, work in shops, pharmacies, drive buses, work in the underground and care for the elderly, their bodies were necessarily exposed to possible death rather than contained or cosseted. As scientists, politicians and statisticians rushed to weigh up the potential merits of various COVID-19 management strategies, including herd immunity, the bare life of the polis became only too stark. Then there was the talk of coronavirus being the great leveller. As the BBC's political editor, Laura Kunzberg, remarked oddly when reporting the news that Prince Charles had contracted corona, this is a virus that does not respect boundaries, as if other flus knew not to approach a royal without the necessary protocol. The pandemic, as many have observed, far from levelling up, has merely amplified our class, race, gender and social disparities, both with respect to the death toll and its economic fallout. And whilst for some at the better end of the deal, being stuck at home may be boring or depressing, for many at home with an abusive partner or oppressive family situation, this enforced incarceration and bodily enclosure can be, psychologically at least, deadly. This is not even to speak of the millions of displaced people already ravaged by war and poverty. But there is one thing we do all have in common in this new way of life, what Jean-Luc Nancy referred to in a recent text as the communovirus, which undeniably is more tolerable for some than for others. And that is the changing relationship to the body, both each other's and our own. In psychoanalysis, the body is a strange thing. It is not a biological body, nor is it entirely a body of fantasy. 
neither zoe nor bios. It consists of various components that in Lacanian terms pertain to imaginary, symbolic and real dimensions. That is to say, when we speak of the body as a concept in psychoanalysis, some aspects of it exist in the realm of identifications, of the visual and of the plane of recognitions and desire, the imaginary. Other aspects of the body are codified by laws, rules and signifiers, disciplining it and measuring it, the symbolic. And another aspect of the body is subject to an indescribable, unquantifiable singularity, contingent yet repetitious in its insistence on the futile search for satisfaction, the real. In fact, the contemporary clinic of Lacanian psychoanalysis focuses so heavily on the significance of the body that in recent years, the notion of the unconscious has been replaced by the concept of the speaking body, deriving from Lacan's term, parletre, or speaking being. This singular speaking body with which the clinic deals is one who is subject to body events, events of jouissance which may not be amenable to interpretation or meaning, as in previous models of unconscious symptom formation. Whilst the effects of language on the body are central to psychoanalysis and manifest themselves in speech, among other places, the speaking body suffers effects that evidently may not always be spoken. The body for contemporary psychoanalysis has taken quite a problematic status, so much so that counterintuitively we could say one is not a body, one has a body, and we are constantly trying to find ways to reappropriate this body. Paraphrasing Jacqueline Miller, the paletka does not come into being through speech, rather speech attributes being to this animal through retroactive effect, at which point the body cuts itself off from its being in order to pass into the realm of having. The paletka has a body rather than is a body. Here we see the passage from Zoe to Bios, just like the emergence of the Lacanian subject, as a dynamic and punctual action that may be reversed at any moment. This withdrawal from the of the body from public life that some of us have been experiencing over the past few months uh, and our transition to virtual modes of communication has in a way made our biological bodies more, not less conspicuous. To be made aware of the potential your own body has, not just as a deadly vehicle for spreading disease, but as vulnerable to death at any moment, highlights the precarious state of feeling healthy. Health, or what Georges Conguillem, following the French surgeon René Leriche, would describe as the silence of the organs is now a deathly silence, white noise pregnant with menace. Every cough is suspicious, every breath is monitored, every flash of sweat potentially symptomatic. Because as they keep telling us, anyone can catch it and anyone can spread it. This new medical gaze on our bodies is particularly problematic when we're usually at the receiving end of a myriad of impulses to satisfaction, food, alcohol, exercise, sex, in a culture whose prime injunction on its citizens is to enjoy, the sudden removal of such a possibility brings a variety of different effects and affects. Now we must not enjoy anything, at least not outside of our houses, and the house is not always such an enjoyable place. Our bodies, to anyone outside of our own homes, are abject, our fluids infectious, and our embraces are deadly. For many, this over-preoccupation with the body will result in hysterical symptoms, hypochondria, and psychosomatic illnesses. Others, the preoccupation with viral avoidance and washing rituals results in obsessive compulsions to repeat. For some, the lack of discipline on the body, previously obtained through a daily working routine, will leave the subject with an intolerable apathy, dragging itself down into depression and despair. For others, the lack of containment of the body may result in delusions, hallucinations, or even psychotic break. The only one assured to be having a good time 
in all of this is the pervert, who knows only too well how to enjoy on behalf of the other. Jeff Bezos is perhaps the king of the perverts in this case, his personal fortune increasing by roughly 30 billion since the beginning of the outbreak. But we may wonder, does he ever come close to the precarious bodies of any of his thousands of employees, or does he have his toilet cleaners, I'm assuming he doesn't do his own, vacuum packed on entry? In other words, this is a crisis even for Jeff. How may we enjoy our bodies, our own and the ones that some of us own, now that they are potentially weapons of disease? In the current pandemic, the management or administration of potential bodies of disease, separating them out into various states of life, amounts to a sort of necropolitical governance of the walking dead. In Akimembe's necropolitics, the necropolitical is defined as contemporary forms of subjugation of life to the power of death. This is more than just Foucault's right to kill, therefore, but also the right to impose social or civil death on the population, the right to enslave bodies, including other forms of domination and violence. While some bodies were already marked with imminent death from COVID-19, others will have to redesign themselves in accordance with the separation of the physical body from the social bond. The ramifications of this will be felt in ways as yet unimaginable and difficult to articulate. In psychoanalysis, a body event is a crisis of jouissance which escapes meaning and has effects which become intolerable for the subject. In the context of our current pandemic, our bodies may feel more foreign than ever at the mercy of forces beyond our control. However, what this precise crisis of the body seems to illustrate is what psychoanalysis knows only too well, that whilst the body really does not belong to us, we may or rather must enter into an alliance of jouissance with it. Much critical theory in the 1980s and 90s predicted such apocalyptic scenarios wherein our bodies become nothing more than cumbersome meat puppets destined to be replaced by the virtual and digital immaterial versions of subjectivity. And in sci-fi and cinema, the human body has long been the object of derision and suspicion for future civilizations. Wachowski's The Matrix depicted the human biological body as an unconscious sack of, albeit extremely valuable, raw energy that could be harnessed to the to power the network of artificial intelligences that created the illusion of reality. The fantasy being that we could separate this permeable and fallible flesh from the world of meaning, appearance and reality in order to experience our being as superhumanly fast, agile and powerful. Free from pain, disease and suffering, human beings could harness the power of their minds in a virtual realm in ways that previous alliances with their bodies simply didn't allow. Uh, but as is common knowledge, Jean Baudrillard, whose simulacrum and simulation served as an inspiration for the Matrix, was not impressed with how the Wachowski brothers and our sisters had misappropriated and misunderstood this concept of hyper reality. Well, Baudrillard was not that the virtual had replaced the real, it was that the real no longer had the function that it used to. In Baudrillard's The Intelligence of Evil, it's a closing text in a series of theory fictions including Fatal Strategies, America, The Transparency of Evil, the postmodern master of hyperbole sets about transforming his critique from one centred on simulation to one of virtualization and indeterminacy. OGR will put forward the hypothesis that we can no longer bear the world of symbolic or actual body exchange and have therefore moved into the suicidal realms of cloning and replication. This, in effect, is COVID-19 social distancing taken to its logical conclusion. Why not just lose the physical body altogether? A role, however, which even Baudrillard sees as signalling the extinction of the human species. Speaking in an interview in 1995, he says, the world of symbolic exchange 
was the world of illusion in the sense of a vital illusion in Nietzsche. These primitive societies still knew how to handle this illusion. For us, this radical illusion is difficult to bear. We replace the radical world of illusion with the relative value of simulation. As he reminds us in the opening chapter of the book, when we say reality has disappeared, the point is not that it has disappeared physically, but that it has disappeared metaphysically. Reality continues to exist. It is its principle that is dead. And let's remember that the reality principle, as Freud defined it, is the principle by which a subject may come to modify their behaviour on account of external forces which prevent the incessant circulation of the bodily, the bodily drives. The reality principle is that which allows for the deferral or of instant gratification and a curbing of the pleasure principle. What Bojo warns for is the ultimate loss of meaning that is the inevitable result of the crisis of distinction between virtual and real. In many ways, Bojo's apocalyptic warnings are vindicated. We do seem to have passed into a realm where our bodies are increasingly full of signifiers, yet devoid of meaning. We recall that the etymology of jouissance is derived from a 15th century legal term denoting the precise way in which one is entitled to enjoy a good which one possesses, a purely administrative function. This crisis of jouissance of the speaking body under the necropolitical regime of coronavirus is one which operates in several different registers. Certain bodies are destined for death due to their economically dispensable status. Others are there to work at risk of death, whilst others must work and stay alive to maintain the economy. The rest will simply be contained and decontaminated in preparation for when they may once again consume. In Jacques Rancière's The Politics of Aesthetics, he draws attention to the inextricable relationship between art and politics. For Rancière, aesthetics must be thought of outside of the narrow confines in which it is often placed. Aesthetics define what may be seen, heard, felt, and thought in a given political community. This he refers to as the distribution of the sensible. A system of self-evident facts of sense perception, perception that simultaneously discloses the existence of something in common and the delimitations that define the respective parts and positions within it, he says. The distribution of the sensible therefore establishes what may be held in common within a community and which parts of it are exclusive. He goes on to say, this appointment of parts and positions is based on a distribution of spaces, times and forms of activity that determines the very manner in which something is common lends itself to participation and in what ways various individuals have a part in this distribution. In other words, the type of work that you do and the time and space afforded to you in your daily routine will determine not your aesthetic experience of life, but your ability to enter into a political engagement with this experience. Francier's analysis falls on Plato's three main forms in which discursive and bodily practices may suggest forms of community, which include firstly, the flat surface of the painting or the static space of the written word. Secondly, the space of bodily movements, which in turn divides itself into two antagonistic models. On the one hand, the movement of simulacra on the stage or today the screen. And on the other, the authentic movement characteristic of communal bodies, the possibility of democratic assembly and protest. Transposed to our current predicament, we may say we understand these three realms in relation to the way in which we are differentially engaged with these distinct aesthetic regimes. These domains of the sensible define what's possible for an individual within a community to enjoy, to understand, and to feel, and thereby apportion limits to the possibility of political participation. It's therefore crucial that as we sink further back into the two-dimensional virtual realm of communication, we remain alert to the models by which different bodies have access to, access to these domains of the sensible. 
This not only determines the manner in which we may participate politically, but conversely, our material political situation determines the aesthetic regimes available to us. As Rancière puts it, the arts only lend themselves to projects of domination or emancipation, what they are able to lend them. That is to say, when they have what they have in common with them, body positions and movement, functions of speech, the parceling out of the visible and the invisible. Furthermore, the autonomy they can enjoy or the subversion that they claim credit for rest on the same foundation. So if there is any resistance that may occur in the midst of this pandemic, it is to become aware that the routines disciplining our bodies and the aesthetic regimes we are engaging in are not the only ones available to us. Is there a chance perhaps for a new distribution of the sensible? We must ask ourselves and each other how do we want to enjoy our bodies in the post-pandemic future. So that was the end of my talk. Um, and I'd really like to uh, introduce our next speaker. Um, and she is the fantastic Vanessa Sinclair, PsyD. She is an American psychoanalyst now based in Stockholm who sees clients internationally. Recently, she authored Scansion in Psychoanalysis and Art, The Cut in Creation, forthcoming from Routledge 2020, edited Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry from Trap Art 2019, and co-edited On Psychoanalysis and Violence, Contemporary Lacanian Perspectives, Routledge 2018, with Mania Steinkola. She hosts Rendering Unconscious podcast and is a founding member of Das Unbehagen, a free association for psychoanalysis. Uh, it's over to Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel and Jacob, for two great papers. And I want to make sure uh, to thank the organizers of this conference. It's really an amazing feat, and it's amazing to see so many speakers from all over the world, actually all over the world, I mean, even just on this panel, uh, Isabel and Jacob are both in London. Hannah is in Berkeley. Jamie is in New York and I am in Stockholm. So this panel alone covers many time zones and it's really just incredible. So, um, all right. So my talk is called Screen as Mirror, Identity as Essentially Malleable. The current age of digital media and technology provides us with the opportunity to witness many psychoanalytic concepts at play right before our very eyes. Projection, identification, the paranoid schizoid position, ego ideal and ideal ego are just a few of the terms whose dynamics are laid bare in the online realm, especially with regard to social media. We project ourselves the way we wish others to view us, tailoring our status posts and photographs in a manner that grabs the attention we crave. Our productions are met with likes as others continually bolster our ego in response to our demand for acknowledgement and proof of love. Some choose to project an image of an idealized self while others appear to put their suffering on display in a seemingly exhibitionistic, voyeuristic dynamic with an imagined audience. In either instance, we are indulging our symptom. The internet and digital realm provide us with a multitude of objects, persons, and personas with which we can identify in a way that has never occurred before in human history. 
Just a few generations ago, the vast majority of people rarely came into contact with anyone else outside of their immediate family or community. Travel was rare and choices were limited. Not long ago, there was no internet, television, or even telephone. Now, the vast array of personalities and personas on display is virtually limitless. Let's go back and think about the development of the individual and how this development helps us to understand ourselves and the potential we have at our fingertips every time we sit down at the keyboard face to face with the mirror of the screen. We are not born as blank slates. We are born into a story, into an already existing narrative. We are born into history, the history of our parents, grandparents, and extended family, the greater community and society at large. Even before we are born, others have ideas of who we will be, what we will do, how we may fail or succeed, all before we have left our mother's body. We are subjugated in utero, our identity prescribed and not with us in mind. Identity isn't intrinsic though, it is constructed. Every person in the family system acquires a certain identity with regard to their position in the family and relation to the others. You are the mother of, father, son or daughter of, wife or husband of. And with these come social rules and norms with which you are expected to abide. Everyone is assigned their place. This system or power structure in the family and greater society at large is built on dichotomy, male, female, active, passive, one, zero. But what happens when we challenge the system, break down these barriers, push boundaries, surpass borderlines and transgress limits? In the ego and the id, Sigmund Freud stated, our ego is first and foremost a body ego. In other words, we learn about ourselves and the world through our bodies, especially our orifices, as these are the spaces where we exchange inside and out, ingest and discharge, are penetrated and expel. These sites are holes, openings or gaps, but they are also limits and boundaries. Neither fully inside nor out, they exist in a sort of liminal space or terrain. The rim of the mouth, anus, vagina, nostrils, ears, eyes. In fact, the surface of our body is comprised of an unfathomable number of orifices, the pores of the skin, a landscape of tiny mouths, opening and closing more quickly or slowly, depending on our level of relaxation, stimulation, physical exertion, or mood. For Lacan, our identity is first formed during the mirror stage. Understanding the originary process of identity formation may be useful in exploring the myriad of ways we are able to mold our identity today. With this in mind, we may better see the ways in which we may use technology, including digital media and the internet as tools in constructing ourselves in a more intentional way, both as individuals and as a greater community by working directly with the interface of the mirror. 
According to Lacan, during the period between the ages of approximately six to 18 months, the infant looks into a mirror and sees her own mirror image reflected back to her. This image she sees in the mirror appears to be whole and the underlying assumption is that appearing whole equates with feeling whole too, or experiencing wholeness. As the child's experience of herself and her own body feels fragmented, this wholeness that she imagines the mirror image to experience is then identified with, internalized and integrated. Once the child has interjected this imagined sense of wholeness, she then begins to identify herself with it. This then forms the original template or underlying structure of our ego. Throughout our lifetimes, we are constantly attending to, working and reworking our internalized ego or sense of self. As we continually come into contact with others, interjecting and integrating aspects of them that we enjoy or wish to emulate or destroy. In this way, our identity can be seen as an ongoing creation that we work on or play with throughout our lives, being essentially malleable. The mirror in this case need not be a literal mirror, our view of ourselves reflected. We may also be reflected in the gaze of others, whether they be close intimate relationships or more generally those we encounter in society at large. Another aspect of Lacan's mirror stage is that once the child recognizes herself in the image in the mirror, she turns and looks to the mother or primary caregiver in a desire for confirmation. The child requires the affirmation from the mother or primary caregiver to feel secure in the understanding that the person she sees in the mirror is indeed herself. We understand ourselves through the circuit of reflection mirrored from those around us. When the formation of identity is conceptualized in this manner, it may be more readily understood how the altering of one's external self or projected mirror image may aid in developing our internal sense of self. But the mirror may also be the screen. As noted, we may play with our own image through manipulating the perception of ourselves online. When our screens are thought of as mirrors of ourselves, we can see that the intentional construction of our own image online may aid us in molding our identity in a way we wish to be perceived, rather than having to accept the identity prescribed to us by the family and society into which we were born. In this way, the online community can be a way for us to explore our identity in a myriad of ways, trying on various personas, playing with identity as we explore ourselves. However, our ego or identity is not equivalent to ourself. The position of what would more accurately be considered to be the true self, what Lacan calls the subject, is rather situated in the gap that exists between consciousness and matter, the ego and the real of the body, sensory perception and the unconscious. This borderland space or cut is foundational to our very being and is where we exist as subjects. Yet this existence isn't static or fixed, but rather formed in a perpetual process of becoming. We must continue to come into being. Our desire must remain driven and not become inert. Inertia can be understood as a form of death. 
The unconscious shows how society, culture, and biology fail, how they are limited. Not fully in the realm of nature or nurture, we are situated in the space between. Psychoanalytic logic remains fundamentally irreducible to any of these terms. Freud's conceptualization of the divided subject, conscious-unconscious, undermines the possibility of a seamless identity, sexual or otherwise. The concept of the individual is a product of power, and identity is a regulatory norm. Historicism relegates identity to cultural and social practices. The ideology of a society ensuring maximum freedom for an individual as long as one agrees to conform. Our ego or identity is the internalized fantasy of our ideal self mirrored in the ideal egos of our parents. Their identities formed in much the same way as did theirs before that. We are carrying generations of identifications and generations of trauma. The effort to normalize is itself pathological. What normalization does is fix desire, constraining the mobility of desire. Each time a person is pushed into another category, one's desire is increasingly limited. The more social rules that are in place, the more the unconscious is frozen. The range of human experience has been over-pathologized throughout time as the dominant group continually ostracizes those they deem to be other, lesser, and unworthy. Fortunately, this arcane system is hopefully being dismantled and there's a real push not to maintain this status quo. Let's not look to the past for what may, we may construct in the future. Let's not replace the king with another king. It's time to invent new ways of being in the world rather than simply regurgitating the same old tropes that have failed time and time again. While we have the ability to perform, manipulate and play with the malleability of our identities in a way humanity has never experienced before by donning various personas as we mold ourselves, the other side of this phenomena is that we may feel increasingly isolated and alienated from ourselves and others as we come to terms with this masquerade, both online and in vivo, as well as with identity as a performance in general. Some struggle with feelings of authenticity and report feelings of imposter syndrome. We must of course contend with the fact that corporations like Facebook who promote the idea of creating community are actually mining and selling our data to massive corporations, advertising agencies, and governments to what ends we don't fully understand. More attention and scrutiny needs to be paid to this, of course, as well as to invasions of privacy in our homes through such devices as Siri and Alexa. And especially when it comes to the privacy of those with whom we work as clinicians, we need to con be considerate of what platforms we are using when conducting teletherapy. But despite these issues, we also have the opportunity to harness the potential that these online networks and platforms have in allowing us to understand ourselves and our communities better, to connect and promote voices that have been historically suppressed and oppressed, we may harness the potential of these technologies as tools for connection, self-reflection, insight, and community building. 
in the evolution of our global community of which the success of this conference is a prime example. Technology allows psychological and psychoanalytic services to have an outreach like never before as people located in rural communities who may not otherwise have access to services or those who may be homebound due to a difference of ability, have small children or work from home are able to access services remotely. We are better able to connect for treatment, mentorship and community building. Young people growing up now have a multitude of personalities and personas with whom they may identify. Persons of all genders, races, cultures, nationalities, abilities, positions in society, levels of education, talents and careers are represented and revered. This can have wonderful effects. As people are provided with a plethora of ideas and options, not only has the variety and diversity of humankind been illuminated, but also the potential inherent in the individual. The essential malleability of identity can be recognized as not only varying from person to person, but also changing within one individual as an identity, as an identity may evolve over one's lifespan. Why experience ourselves as limited and one-dimensional? We are able to mold ourselves and self-determine more than we tend to realize. Instead of accepting the narratives provided to us by parents, family, and society, we have the ability to create space in which to invent ourselves. The tools of modern day technology may be used in such a way to allow for even further experimentation than we can currently imagine. We have the ability to harness these technologies as tools through which we may learn to mold ourselves, our society, and our global community more in line with the way we wish them to be, rather than accepting the way they have been handed to us. Thank you. <laughs> and now we have Jamie Steele. Jamie Steele is an American licensed marriage and family therapist whose clinical expertise is systems therapy and working with queer, non-monogamous, kink, BDSM, secular, and other marginalized populations. In addition to holding master's degrees in social sciences, family therapy, and postgraduate training in psychoanalysis, she is also currently completing a PhD in science and technology studies. Her research interests include gender and artificial intelligence technologies, AI constructions of the mind, and psychotherapy, mental health, and digital platforms. She is currently based in New York State. Thanks so much. Uh, I also want to just take a minute to thank the organizers so much for putting this together, um, to Vanessa for bringing the five of us together, um, and I also just want to say uh, really quickly to Isabel, congratulations uh, on your successful defense uh, in the last week or so. Uh, okay, so my paper is uh, titled Psychotherapy Technologies and the Desire for Connection. So this is really just something I'm playing with, um, but I would really love uh, any feedback or thoughts about developing it. So uh, I'll start. Weizenbaum tells a story. During the development of the ELISA program, he noticed a certain trend happening among his staff. 
For those who don't know, the ELISA program is among the earliest chatbots, the development of which has had a radical and lasting impact on the field of computer science, particularly in the fields of machine learning, natural language processing, and artificial intelligence. The program itself consists of a set of algorithmic scripts designed to respond to the user's typed input through an output printed to the computer screen. So if you think about the, uh, if you saw the movie Alien, uh, if you think about the interface of Mother, um, the computer uh, on the ship, uh, or a more current but less aesthetically similar uh, example is online customer service chatbots that pop up when you're on a retail site uh, asking you if you need help. Uh, okay, so Weizenbaum took as his reference for that program the Rogerian psychoanalyst. The reason for this is primary, primarily logistical rather than symbolically meaningful, even though we, I think probably most of us as analysts imagine ourselves to be very important. Uh, <laughs> it was rather actually um, instead that in the Rogerian tradition, the analyst uses a form of repetition to elicit deeper responses from the analysand. So this uh, concept of repetition or practice of repetition by the analyst allowed Weizenbaum to formulate a scripted program which could learn from the user without needing to generate independently contextual responses. So the sort of trick of the program is that it's employing a sort of mechanical mimicry under the guise of therapeutic logics. So Weizenbaum himself actually considered this technology a parody. Uh, it, you know, uh, was a computational impressionist, uh, parroting back the user's responses to deliver the illusion of the thinking machine. Um, yet an unexpected phenomenon emerged. The people in his development group began to develop relationships with the program. So the story that he tells famously and repeatedly is of walking in on his secretary using the program and kicking him out of the room so she could have privacy with the program. Uh, Weizenbaum was astonished. These were members of his team. They're not members of the general public coming in to use this. They were uh, as such really intimately familiar with the coding and the inner workings of this program. They knew that the screen operated as a facade, a smoke and mirrors illusion behind which um, the encoded uh, mimesis could hide. So even despite this, uh, these uh, members of his team were taken with the illusion of autonomy in the chatbot they had programmed. So I'll also reference Sherry Turkle. She recounts in her book, uh, The Second Self, uh, how many users of the ELISA program even came to learn how to modulate their own thinking to conform to the program's constraints in order not to elicit an illogical response from the program, uh, which would then crash the fantasy of the conscious interlocutor, the uh, consciousness of the machine. This thinking with the machine characterizes the mutually constitutive nature of the relationship between the user and the program uh, that we can, you know, do, I think, really fruitful analysis using this program. Um, so outside of his closest circle of engineers, this technology was then met with alternating waves of fear and excitement about its potential transformations 
of the clinical practice of psychotherapy. And this response both uh, flummoxed Weizenbaum. Uh, it also persists, honestly, against all logic within digital mental health uh, startups and computer science circles, even to this day. Um, we can have that conversation another time, but yes. <laughs> so uh, even some psychologists and psychiatrists wrote passionately on the matter, declaring that this, um, this type of program was either the savior or the death knell, uh, again, the splitting uh, of clinical psychotherapy. To this day, I still hear the haunting of this moment in refrains of therapists, therapists who are very skilled in reflexive and relational thinking, noting their own anxiety over being replaced by computers, uh, which decidedly do not think, uh, at least not yet. <laughs> um, so despite this interpretation of the ELISA program's technology as one with implications for the automation of psychotherapy, I believe there's a much more interesting and frankly more realistic narrative underlying this story. Along with the power of a scripting trick to spark the fantasy of the autonomous machine, this story is also one of longing. These relationships with the ELISA program, I don't think necessarily represent a desire to relate to or to receive therapy from a machine. Rather, they illuminate the human de desire for connection and recognition so strongly that we'll turn to a clever machine trick to achieve the illusion of it. So what insight can this story give us for the current moment? As the clinical space came crashing, uh, crashing to a halt along with you know, all public spaces really, in this moment of an international pandemic, Clinicians and clients alike, our patients, were thrown into chaos to figure out how and whether to continue meeting. Despite some states in the U.S., uh, including my home and licensing state of Georgia, uh, have incorporated rules regulating the provision of telehealth practice and what constitutes basic competency in telemental health. Uh, however, some others, along with uh, many professional organizations, we're met with a swift kick by the pandemic. Uh, my own clinical field of practices accrediting organization had to quickly alter their accreditation standards to figure out how to allow students who are practicing under supervision and master's programs to count telehealth hours towards their graduation practice hours, since even now in 2020, they had decided not to do so previously. There are entire clinical infrastructures which exist without adequate support to their members as providers of clinical mental health care on um, the development of competency and telehealth provision. So as mental health professionals uh, struggle finding themselves suddenly forced into moving online, uh, not only are they met with huge unanticipated learning curves as they attempt to learn uh, and integrate new technologies, but the mediation of technology uh, in the therapeutic relationship has completely shifted that relationship, uh, which I, I would argue has led to the disorientation of both clinicians and patients alike. Jillian uh, Isaacs Russell in her book, Screen Relations, highlights the differences in the virtual analytic or psychotherapeutic frame. She discusses the ways in which the ability of both sides of the dyad uh, to attend to body language diminishes. Uh, the disorientation of almost but not quite eye contact through the screen 
and the lack of physical connectedness with uh, which comes from being present together in the same room, even if the dyad are not face-to-face -face, but are instead situated on or behind the couch. This is not to say that uh, digital mental health cannot or should not be done. As one clinician I spoke with recently responded, well, it's certainly better than nothing. So this brings me back to Wisenbaum. While not all digital mental health platforms are created equally uh, to Vanessa's earlier point, uh, the use of HIPAA compliant video softwares for telehealth provision do still provide that most fundamental function of psychotherapy, which is connection and recognition. Despite interruptions to this sense, when the platform glitches and causes disruption to both the literal and figurative connection, uh, and by that I mean both the relational connection and the, uh, you know, uh, wired or wireless connection, right, the computational or digital connection. These online platforms and our quick adjustment to them have shown just how far the reach of desire for connection allows for forgiveness of less than ideal circumstances. It's not that the technological medium is the connection, rather the machine comes to mediate the connection of people to other people in the clinical dyad, which is after all the fundamental defining aspect of this relationship. So that is my paper. Uh, thanks again for including me. So I will uh, go right on to introduce Hannah Zeven, who is a lecturer in the Department of English at UC Berkeley and uh, is affiliated with the University of California at Berkeley Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society. She received her PhD from the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication at NYU in 2018. Her work has appeared in Slate, American Imago, Logic Magazine, and beyond. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's a scam caller. Uh, perfect timing. Her work has appeared, uh, sorry, okay, her first book, Within Without, Therapy at a Distance, is coming forth uh, from MIT Press next year. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for organizing um, and Vanessa for bringing us together and for these incredible presentations. Um, so I think before properly getting into the, the talk as I've had it written here, I just wanted to say that I decided to speak on the earliest um, iterations of online uh, teletherapy because teletherapy and therapy have been collapsed now into one practice really in this pandemic, almost for everyone across the globe in an unprecedented way. But there have been practitioners and therapists receiving and interacting um, in this sort of mode uh, for 30 plus years at this point. Um, and I think thinking through the history of this practice may prove useful uh, and like a bulwark against the splitting uh, to think through some of the anxieties and controversies and critiques of teletherapy um, because the ones that emerge in the 80s and 90s say are nearly identical to what's coming up now. Um, so uh, I'm going to talk about a brief uh, instance of teletherapy, the earliest I've been able to track down um, and uh, over the internet e-therapy and then a micro case study between an e-patient and an e-therapist. 
Uh, and then lastly, I just want to offer a content warning because I am going to talk about suicidal ideation and suicidality. Okay. Dear Uncle Ezra, where is the bridge that everyone keeps talking about? I'm considering it myself. In 1986, a Cornell-affiliated person who I presume to be a student walked up to a CU Info terminal and wrote the above message to a new digitally-based therapeutic service. CU Info, Cornell's campus-wide information system, was newly accessible that year through network terminals located across the university. It had some 20 items on it, all pretty basic, the headlines of the school paper, departmental hours and phone numbers, but a new item had just been added called Ask Uncle Ezra. Created by two university employees, Dr. Jerry Feist, uh, a psychologist trained in the kind of American counseling model, uh, and uh, Steve Arona, a computer scientist, uh, Ask Uncle Ezra was an electric uh, counseling service and the first ever anonymous online messaging form to be run by a therapist as opposed to an advice columnist or a peer support person uh, and the first ever e-therapy service to have pure therapeutic intent. The way it worked was that you would select from this drop-down menu, ask Uncle Ezra, and then a student or staff member or faculty member could decide to read previous conversations, digital conversations and their answers, or to ask their own question, such as where's that bridge everyone's talking about. CU Info, which has a login screen, but did not associate the ID with usage, granted anonymity. So now in the contemporary, both online, just normally with social media and in therapy, we assume that it's going to be one name talking to another name, maybe with faces. In the late 80s, early 90s, through the 2000s, it was quite the opposite. This program uh, allowed these, all these questions to go through the proto-email service, uh, Cornell's Mail, to Rorona, who then checked them out and forwarded them to Feist, the psychologist. Rorona, uh, who received only a few questions in the first uh, week the service was active, including spamming questions, which, and I'll pause there to say, this too may be a spamming question. The student may not have at all been suicidal, right? Um, I read it as open, we can't know. Uh, but for Feist, uh, he had a heart-stopping moment. And when I spoke to him on the phone uh, in doing oral histories for my book, he could recite the message and its response by heart 30 years later, which I found incredible. Uh, Feist decided to answer the question despite uh, a, a very intense worry about liability. What does it mean to interact with someone who may take their own life digitally, right? This was not at all substantiated under the law at this point. But he responded, I get these questions over the phone. I get them on paper slips from students sitting across the desk from me. That's my job. So he answered it. And within an hour, he sent a reply, a very long reply I'm not going to read here. Digital therapy, which most frequently is thought of as either being completely contemporaneous or, as Jamie just talked about, belonging to that domain of charismatic chatterbots uh, such as Eliza, uh, or apps for the iPhone has its own human-to-human -human archives that are quite long at this point. E-therapy's history is one of elaborating networked intimacy and providing therapy even when the clinician cannot know who the patient is and the help provided to that patient is remote. While traditional therapy relies on spoken exchange, this new form of networked help coincided and assisted 
with practices for establishing intimacy over the internet. So a number of the phenomenon that Jacob and Vanessa have been speaking about, I argue, co-evolve with therapeutic intent online. Uh, it's not just that one begets the other. Uh, in my longer book, I call this uh, effect distanced intimacy. For early users of e-therapy outside of the academy, the very act of finding help was incredibly difficult. Uh, and finding trustworthy providers uh, was especially uh, an arduous process if one didn't have an institutional affiliation of any sort. Um, this was the case for Mar Martha Ainsworth, who had no clinical background herself, was no longer in school, but is the first e-therapy patient uh, to write of her own treatment. Uh, she got her start in the e-therapy world, providing peer-to-peer -peer emotional support online via online villages. I don't know if we can all think back to the early 90s when that was uh, one way of connecting pre-Second Life. Um, Ainsworth communicated with those in despair um, and noticed, quote, an alarming number of people admit to online suicidal feelings that they would have been embarrassed to acknowledge in person, even to a professional counselor, and counted more and more wounded souls who, freed from the anonymity of online communication, poured forth a seamless, uh, seemingly bottomless well of pain. Some 13 years later, uh, trained professionals began to make their clinical services available. And so by 1995, Ainsworth both established uh, the first sort of clearinghouse online, connecting patients with therapists across the globe, but also saw e-therapy for herself. So again, in 1995, uh, she writes in My Life as an E-Patient, again, it's her case study, uh, a genre already sorely lacking in examples, and I, th I think it is the only one about a teletherapy in existence. She details the difficult search for a reputable and helpful mental health care provider who is willing to work or already working online consistently. She did not want to meet at all in person, even though she lived in a large metropolitan area where she could have rather easily saw uh, in-person advice had she wanted it or in-person counsel. Uh, and specifically, she didn't want advice. She wanted someone fully trained as a psychologist. Uh, using uh, uh, the non-indexed internet, but clicking through homepages again and again, again, in 1995, she clicked her page to, uh, her clicked her way to a page with a banner, quote, welcome to the mental health cyber clinic. And um, the aesthetics are pure, like early 90s. There's like pink and yellow, and it's just really fabulous. I wish I was sharing my screen. Uh, although Ainsworth doesn't name in her case study the specific psychotherapist that provided her this help, I have uncovered that it was Dr. David Summers, PhD. Summers, uh, who, who is uh, still practicing uh, outside of DC and who I also conducted oral history with uh, for the book and therefore this talk. Uh, Summer's therapeutic quote unquote voice was uh, again cultivated, uh, which was something that also um, folks who ran Ezra talked about, cultivating a therapeutic voice that would translate in the writing. Uh, the way Summers wanted to appear uh, in his written uh, speech was informal but professional. Ainsworth found a therapist uh, who was interested in this ongoing dialogue uh, and presented e-therapy as a viable form of mental health work, not something lesser, but something he was content, content to go on with over time. Did I just freeze for a long time? No? Okay. You all just froze for a long time. Um, okay. 
Sorry. So uh, Summers has a, a kind of interesting background. He, he was one of the students of Albert Ellis, um, a pioneer of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, but was more interested in psychodynamics than, uh, than Ellis. And he had run a mental health clinic in person with uh, 650 patients and 25 staff members working under him um, in D.C., which closed in the early 90s. So we, we should always think the embodied community as well, uh, when many, many, many mental health care programs for communities were defunded across the 1990s in the United States. Now he's an employee of the National Institute for Mental Health working on these issues. Uh, for Summers, uh, he wanted to have his own cyber clinic uh, to stem the tide uh, of the loss of peer-to-peer -peer or low-fee mental health care specifically um, in reaction to the underfunded uh, and then later gutted completely Community Mental Health Care Act. So he decided to set a fee schedule. And he's, again, he's the first person I can really track who was thinking about how to charge for what's, again, considered lesser work online, which is something that's coming up, at least in back-channel conversations, uh, for psychotherapists about what we'll do if this goes on, 18 months, two years, et cetera. So again, 95, he sets his fee at $100, but not per session, for unlimited mental health care per month. Uh, he says that he eventually does thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of clinical work online. And in total, across a decade, was paid $300 for it that immediately he realized having a fee schedule at all had to go out the window with e-therapy, um, that it wasn't to be supported and that instead he wanted to counsel patients for free. Um, one thing I've seen across the history of teletherapy is that teletherapy is almost universally free until we get to 2010 when uh, Silicon Valley and big tech begin to think about apps for the iPhone and smartphone as a way forward. And as increasingly folks in private practice start to make their fee schedules identical for telephone work or uh, online work or embodied work and make them equivalent economically. Uh, but in the early 90s, this wasn't codified at all. Um, other patients who might make use of online therapy, uh, so not just those who couldn't afford uh, in-person therapy, were those who couldn't make schedules work due to uh, work hours or childcare, um, or patients like Ainsworth, who now I want to return to, for whom there was a clear preference for consulting online rather than in the consulting room. And again, she refused to appear in person. Summer's cyber clinic hosted many of the same features proper to an initial consultation in the traditional in-room scenario. He tried to make a kind of one-to-one -one conversions uh, and something that we see now in terms of the appification of mental health care in, in things like Talkspace, uh, maybe the most famous uh, online therapy app. Uh, he, but it's still the early 90s. So he provided a certification that he was indeed he and not being impersonated because this was a trend in the early 90s where websites of therapists were being spoofed uh, and, and credit card information was being taken. He provided a full copy of his CV and credentials. Uh, he also had a readme on the full ethics and legality of those seeking treatment at the time uh, and was very worried both about confidentiality and privacy and privacy breaches. Um, but also needed to mark that he didn't have the same powers that an in-person therapist had in terms of actually wanting to breach confidentiality. 
in that, uh, he couldn't work as a mandated reporter. This was a huge legal question. If someone reported abuse to him, he couldn't act on it. This made him incredibly uh, uncomfortable, especially when working with children. Um, Summers declared that the standard was difficult but not impossible to adhere to in most cases, uh, that he could both respect confidentiality and um, his other duties. Uh, the difficult here was in reporting an action that was taking place at the same time as uh, he was talking to people. So again, this includes suicidal ideation as being uh, the most intensive uh, litmus test. Um, just a little bit more, um, he, he began to do something uh, that I find rather interesting again in our contemporary, which was to protoscript the call. Uh, not the call, sorry, the interaction, uh, to have a kind of algorithmic interaction, even though he was a human. So he had an incredibly detailed, you can still see it online, thanks to the Wayback Machine and the Internet Archive intake form, where he thought that by asking about 30 to 40 questions, he could get a sense, a full picture of the patient. Um, and Ainsworth, when she writes about seeing the intake form, talks about sort of feeling very anxious to encounter all of these questions to start before ever having a back and forth. Uh, and I think that makes sense. That would, that would make me feel anxious too. Um, but that then very quickly, she realized that they had had their first session before they had ever met. Jamie, I am also now getting a spam call from New York. And, and actually I find it reassuring. They stopped for about six weeks after the start of COVID. Um, okay. So uh, this first exchange came in the form of the intake, uh, but then these incredibly long email correspondence began to unfold across many, many years. Um, for the sake of time, I'll just skip ahead to say that, yes, to quote uh, Sherry Turkle also, I think I'm three of five. That's like a good average for a panel. Um, that Turkle has this famous argument that we'd rather text than talk. Uh, that's also from Alone Together, the 2001 book. Um, and I think that, that that is true, especially for someone like uh, Ainsworth, um, where if we apply this argument to digital therapy, it might be that we're less therapeutic resistantly uh, oriented towards text than talk, that it's easier sometimes to not appear. Uh, the zoomification of teletherapy undoes that. We're increasingly being asked to appear, but not really, or appear virtually. Um, but the intimacy that Ainsworth uh, sort of uh, attributes to this life-saving uh, non-embodiment or, or not featured embodiment was a real feeling of closeness. Uh, even though she was no longer anonymous, eventually giving uh, after years her first and then last name and then eventually her state and location, right? Slowly opening up uh, to this kind of set of locations. Um, okay, so why again talk about these two early instances uh, of e-therapy, uh, their limits, uh, and also the fact that people really did uh, emerge into an intimacy with the provider and an excitement with the provider. In the 2010s, uh, this kind of digital intimacy didn't go away, but instead, as I've gestured at, companies rather than private clinicians who are experimenting with uh, therapists uh, extended the use of texting and chatting uh, and reincorporated the actual voice, started to sort of meld the hotline with e-therapy uh, to make these apps. Uh, currently, those have morphed, morphed again, both into further appification and private practice, where we have uh, the ubiquitous use of Zoom to talk about therapy, to be in therapy, on and on. Um, 
And Zoom, in a way, uh, in its pandemic therapy, uh, marks a return to spoken speech for therapeutic aims over and against this kind of de two decades, maybe, of written therapy online, but with a difference, uh, the written moving real-time image. Uh, so I think I'm going to just stop there also because I can hear, I, I'm sorry, I, maybe you can hear too. My child has been crying for the last five minutes and it's two brains. Um, but thank you so much. Um, I think we now have a number of questions we could open it up to. We have a number of correspondences like throughout the papers, uh, aside from Sherry Turkle. Um, yeah, wherever anyone wants to go. Thank you, Hannah. Do any of the panelists have any questions for any of the other panelists? Jacob, you 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 rushed through the end of yours, and I saw you had a slide talking about Facebook and Zuckerberg, and I was just curious what it said. Um, oh yeah, did I, I think I skipped I skipped that? So I was just that was like a small kind of point where I was kind of saying that um, talking about splitting actually. Um, if we think about the the kind of PR of, of Facebook, the publicity that's also that's also split. So if we if we think about Zuckerberg, he's kind of really downplaying any kind of sort of involvement in, in all these scandals that Facebook uh, has been involved in, and and Facebook is keen to sell itself as this kind of really good platform. Um, and with Zuckerberg, I had a quote from him there where he's kind of saying. Um, um, in, in relation to this Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, he says, "Oh, that is a crazy. That's that's a crazy idea that, that Facebook is is involved." Uh, and he said, "Others." Uh, he kind of said that that those critics who kind of say that they have a lack of empathy. So so he's kind of he's kind of it's all uh, the others for. That was just a like like a minor point I skipped. Yeah, I love how he's talk, constantly talking about how it's all about building community. And mm. meanwhile, like selling all this information out from under everybody this whole time. Mm. Well, something also that didn't come up like explicitly during our conversation, but that like I kept thinking about as so many of us were, were talking is like the logics of the algorithm right so like in order to have an algorithm uh you it has to have very tightly bounded uh classifications right so like in order to sort you it has to have an a, a bounded like bubble to put you into right and there are they they're not leaky they're they're completely bounded so that also came up for me during a couple of different people's like thinking through splitting or um, thinking through the ways in which like the infrastructures of the internet uh, and social media actually perpetuate this kind of um, reification of identification, if that makes sense, or even disidentification. Yeah, absolutely. And constantly categorizing us even more and more and more. I hate when I hear these people talk about how uh, the algorithms, how they know us better than we know ourselves. That makes, that, that makes me so crazy. <laughs> well, that's, but that's a fantasy. Like, yeah. I, no, I hate it. 
But I think, yeah, I think, I mean, with the algorithm, I think that's really, that's really interesting. And um, this kind of black boxing idea that it's also like, we can't get to it. Um, and, and there is lots of criticism of algorithms, which I think is really justified. But at the same time, if those kind of, those kind of algorithms or those kind of other technological aspects, if they weren't there, we couldn't even use the platforms. They become so unusable, probably. If there wasn't an algorithm that kind of sorts, like my uh, my newsfeed or my timeline somewhere, it's just it becomes unusable because it's just like bombarded with with stuff. Like we probably wouldn't use it anymore. We'd have to go back to all writing our own code. <laughs> <laughs> if we want to go way back into the early nineties. <laughs> I think there are some questions in the yeah we're getting more questions if you chat I don't know who is like how, how that works answer the questions can you see them <laughs> two of them are for you Jacob at least I've, 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 yeah I've just, just let someone else talk for a minute maybe and then I can Well, I see this top one that says Robert is saying is a uh, hi Robert is saying is it possible to be on the internet in a non-narcissistic fashion? If so, how? Anybody else? Wait, sorry, that's question. I think from the psychoanalyst. No, the thing I I feel like from being a psychoanalyst, I've learned that people are just narcissistic. So, so to me, the answer is no. No, people are always narcissistic, <laughs> and um, just talking to themselves. And I don't I don't really have much to do with it. Everybody's just talking at me, and I'm staying out of their way so they can do their analysis. That's how I feel. So, anybody else? <laughs> no, I agree completely. <laughs> There's quite a few questions actually. Um, um, Jacob, yeah, there's a few for you. You should. Um, yeah, so there is. How can the subject who is being refed their paranoid skits or quotes back to them use this to their advantage? Um, that, 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 that's, that's a good question. Um, I don't. I can maybe jump in just a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So there's this really great article by, I think it's by Tarleton Gillespie, um, recounting the case. Uh, he calls it uh, algorithmic recognition or something like that, Algo algorithmically recognizable. Mm -hmm. uh, so he talks about the case of Dan Savage um, being prodded by followers to elicit a campaign to make a, a, a definition for the word Santorum in response to the homophobic remarks of Rick Santorum, uh, who's an American senator, who um, uh, wanted to make... Uh, wanted to make homosexual sex acts illegal. Uh, so uh, in response, Dan Savage uh, and his followers 
I will not, uh, you're welcome to Google the phrase Santorum to see what it is. I am not going to tell you here because it's gross. Uh, but uh, basically that actually did um, take over the, the algorithm for Santorum. So anytime people Googled Rick Santorum for a long time, almost a decade, that's what would come up. Uh, so that may be one of those spaces where actually like by sort of manipulating the algorithm back, you can uh, sort of be empowered in some way. But it does require a lot of energy, right? Like he had a lot of people posting websites and clicking mm. on them to get uh, upgraded in the algorithm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a good example. I think like, yeah, there is this idea of kind of gaming, like gaming the, the, the algorithm or the system. I don't know, that probably works in this kind of case if, if it's related to search terms. But if you, I think it's probably more difficult to, um, I don't know if we think about like an individual Facebook user um, that wants to kind of kind of uh, game the, the the platform, or uh, that that's probably more difficult. I think now what you can now do, like on Facebook, is you can kind of um, disable like this kind of targeted advertising. Like you can see um, what kind of ad advertisers are actually kind of um, uh, it's kind of sending sending uh, ads to you, and you can kind of disable that, but that doesn't really stop you from getting other kind of kind of ads, and and you're not really kind of fundamentally uh, altering the the algorithm. So I think that's that, that I think that's quite difficult to kind of use this to your to your own to your own advantage because the platforms don't really want you to to do that because otherwise you would have we would have a lot more control as as users. I think this is in, in some ways related to um, Laura Sheehy's question, which I think is so phenomenal. Maybe I should read it for, um, which is how do we wrestle with or think about Fanon's warning to us that we act as agents of the state or here, right, agents of the algorithm, but agents of the state, especially in a time when we're using platforms that the state actively uses for surveillance and to ends that might not match with what we might uh, see as our altruism or helping role. Um, and I, I think that this has been a very complicated uh, question across the whole history of teletherapy, going back to the sort of much celebrated, right, um, a little bit, but well, you know, before Fanon, but also about the radio, Winnicott's work on the radio, which has been mm -hmm. very much celebrated, um, but actually is, is complicated because of the ways in which it's complicit with the state, um, and and so when we do make use of all of these uh, platforms, I think in small ways and big ways, we can side with corporations, we can cite with um, histories of complete devastation that are exacerbated as opposed to made more equal digitally. Um, I remember on one forum or another, Jamie and I both sort of, you know, from science and technology studies, were like, please consider what, what platform you might use um, especially because we're going to be here for a long time and, and the people who are already um, most often attacked by agents of the state are, as always, uh, the most vulnerable um, mm. in any paradigm, including this paradigm. I love this question. Thank you. I don't know if others want to respond. Yeah, thank you, Lara, for that question. Um, now, I think about this a lot, and I remember that exchange, and I was so grateful that Jay 
Amy chimed in and was like, hey, let's be careful about what platforms we're all jumping on. And then immediately there was a response like, well, we need to give these people care. And it's like, yeah, but we also need to think about like the privacy issues. There are real privacy issues with using online communication. Um, I've had my practice online for since I left New York two and a half years ago. And I've been using WhatsApp um, because mm. it's encrypted. So I felt like that was more protected. But now that Facebook's bought WhatsApp, I'm worried. Does anybody know any more about this? <laughs> well, I know that Facebook insists that they do not have the ability to read um, the encrypted messages. They are intended encryption, uh, I believe. But also, I don't believe a word that comes out of uh, Zuckerberg's mouth. So, um, you know, I imagine he's probably not lying to uh, governments, but potentially is. Um, and I think also just to, to Laura's question, um, I think it is a question that we should all be sitting with uh, for a long time <laughs> and, and constantly coming back to as well especially as these platforms uh, develop and continue to evolve uh, without regulatory oversight, because of course, why would you regulate something like you said, Laura, that's uh, benefiting you? So I think being mindful, you know, and I think that's something that psychoanalysis and uh, psychotherapy, you know, maybe more broadly, some psychotherapies uh, really are, uh, strong, you know, it's, it's our strength is, is reflexivity and, uh, observing our own behavior. So really encouraging all of us to take the observation of our own behavior, um, online, uh, as well as in face-to-face, -face, uh, seriously. And, and also that there are ways to do protection. Activists have worked on this. There are really great resources about, I mean, this is taking that question very literally, right? Um, about um, how we literally work online as, uh, you know, all of whether it's Facebook, et cetera, is pervasively sending data back of all kinds back to the government. Right? It's like Facebook. I think the worst example is that if one mentions a loss of employment on Facebook, it alters the algorithm related to your credit score and it will make it harder for you to ever get housing ever again, things like this. So, so even that literal thing is, is related to huge systems uh, that we have to think about. Um, but things like the telephone have worked, mm. <laughs> the, the actual telephone, uh, even though they are also uh, open. Uh, so I think also thinking away from the sort of the most cutting edge can be always beneficial, um, especially as people complain about exhaustion mm. from, from various kinds of visual working online from the blue light. Yeah, I'm so glad that uh, I'm an analyst and that nobody's actually looking at me. I can't imagine staring at the screen all day to see clients. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just, I have a question um, from S. Alfonso Williams. So I'll just answer that really briefly. Um, I actually, uh, so I'm, my license is in Georgia, but I practice in New York. Um, so I, I can't see clients in New York. I'm not licensed in New York. So I've actually been, um, have just a handful of clients that I still continue to see, um, almost two years in. So, um, I, 
was also very skeptical. I wouldn't have done it uh, had I not needed to. Um, you know, I, I didn't have, I didn't do digital psychotherapy or virtual psychotherapy um, prior to moving. But actually, uh, it was a, a much easier transition than I expected it to be, which is not to say that it's not different. Um, it definitely is. But I think part of what concerns me and also like part of what I really appreciate about um, uh, Hannah's work is that uh, as therapists, I think it's really, really important for us to be thinking through the ways in which uh, virtual or online psychotherapy challenges or pushes up against our theoretical grounding and uh, to still be able to maintain therapeutic, theoretical, like theoretically strong therapeutic work through the new platform and the challenges of that, or just not even challenge, the changes that that includes. Yeah, I really appreciate that Hannah brought up also like this woman who just didn't want face-to-face therapy, even though she was in a major city. Because I also, you know, went to remote therapy um, just because I moved also. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just had some patients that were like, I'm not changing analysts. (laughs) So um, I tried to refer everybody out, but, you know, some people were just like, no. And I also had a couple of people that had moved to the West Coast when I was still in New York and, um, you know, I'd referred to them to someone in their new city and then they tried and then they were like, I'd rather talk to you remotely. So I already had a couple going on before I moved. So I was, I was more resistant to it than any of my, my clients were. Um, and it took more of me cause there's so much arguing in like the psychoanalytic community about like all the problems. And I feel like it's so focused on like, all, all of the negatives about it rather than us looking at like what the tool can offer us as like an addition to face-to-face therapy. Um, and maybe it's not because someone's stuck at home or, or living remotely. Maybe they just rather talk to someone remotely. That's okay too. That's their choice. Uh, that one particular patient went for one in-person session and hated it. <laughs> and there's like a whole story about that and immediately reverted to forever online, forever more. Hmm. For some people, it's, it's what they want. And then that can be analyzed. Why? Exactly. Just analyze it. Let's talk about it. It's the same thing about having a remote presence also in like analytic training. They were like, you cannot be online. Yeah. You cannot have a, I think it was my face page at the time, you know, it's like hmm. you cannot have a personality out in the world because you're one of your analysis might see it and have feelings about it. And it's like, how about if they see it, then you just analyze it. Why were you looking? What were you looking for? What did you see? How did you feel about it? You know, just make it part of the treatment. No, go ahead. I've got, I have a question for, for Isabel. Um, um, So you, you kind of talked about this, this crisis of, of, of jouissance, I thought that's really interesting. And then you kind of ended your talk uh, on a sort of uh, like a really interesting um, sort of with interesting questions. So I was wondering, like, do you think that now we are kind of we're kind of moving towards this kind of state of the kind of on bodies that are kind of online virtual bodies and so on? 
do we need to, how does that kind of change Jouissance? Can this kind of, can we overcome this crisis and kind of experience some sort of new or different way of Jouissance? Yeah, um, I think it sort of operates on various levels, um, that question, because on the one hand, there's the sort of psychoanalytic aspect, but there's also the sort of biopolitical and the necropolitical um, aspect that I was kind of trying to emphasize. And 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 I, I the, the, the sort of the rancier comes in as a sort of mediating factor between both of those aspects because on the one hand we're talking about the problem of how to enjoy our bodies and how the singular subject enjoys and the fact you know whatever the the politics of it is uh, we all have to just deal with this new situation whether that be um, uh, that we're all stuck behind our computers or that we're having to go out every day and drive a bus and feel really scared about the fact that we might have to You know, I'm in contact with a virus every day and feel very precarious. Um, so each of us has to deal with that uh, in a singular way. But um, I think in terms of the sort of political aspects of how we think about um, ways to, to not just in a kind of psychoanalytic way to talk about the subject in our own private domain, but to try and use psychoanalysis um, to think of the biopolitics of it, uh, the, the question of the sensible and the question of how we need to like bear in mind the fact that whilst all this is going on, it, it is, is, we, we can quite easily fall into a trap of because we were kind of re retreating into these private worlds that we become less attuned to the, the kind of fragmentation that's happening between different parts of the population that are exposed to To, to the, the different uh, risks and and, um, and psychological and psychoanalytic uh, dimensions of of being in the, under under lockdown or being in a pandemic, and um, so in terms of the 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 jouissance question, yeah, I mean I think it's um, it's obviously I'm, I'm not a clinician, so I don't I can't speak for the the, the, the practice of psychoanalysis. I mean, I think it's theoretically correct, but, but that's not for me to talk about, how, you know, the, the, that side of it. But in terms of, um, you know, trying to, to, what I think is important is with psychoanalysis to be able to, to think of the singularity of the subject, yes, but at the same time, think about how we can operate politically with all of these singularities. And that's often a problem with psychoanalysis of it not being able to kind of um, straddle these two worlds and, and still do justice to, to what psychoanalysis is for, of like actually dealing with your body and how you enjoy it and how you can deal with your symptom. So I don't know if that answers kind of what you were yeah. getting at, but <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You know, that's a really good point, Isabel. And um, in the psychoanalytic institutes, it's actively discouraged for us to speak about society and po politics and like, how we can apply these ideas to the greater society, which yeah. I just find really bizarre, but that's, that's where it is, at least when I was in training. Mm -hmm. um, and I've heard a lot of people have had that experience where we're, we're like actively discouraged and actually told it's unethical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is, I don't know. 
Um, I just realized we still have questions over here. I've never done this kind of Zoom thing before, and I just noticed there's more questions still. I just got a notification saying from the panel saying that because there's a question from Alfonso, so I, I feel I should um, respond to it because yeah, uh, just Alfonso, you said is is there a way to pass off what is happening to my real body via jouissance to my virtual body, who will symbolically exchange places for me? Um, I don't know if I understand exactly your question because you always have these amazing thoughts that are so complex and interesting and I don't know if I'll necessarily do justice to what you're asking but I I think um, it relates a little bit to what I already just said to Jacob about um, about this problem with um, not, not, not knowing how to... Um, to come to terms with this disjunction between the real body and the, the experience of jouissance and the fact that we are extra, abstracting ourselves um, into these worlds of um, reflection and um, contemplation that we are lucky enough to be able to do because we're all here talking about these people outside having to deal with the real crisis. Um, so in terms of symbolic exchange, in, in a sense, that's already happening. I mean, we already are doing that. We're already, um, that's the practice of philosophy, I, I think, is, and, and all intellectual activity is basically swapping your, the, your bodily jouissance for some sort of symbolic exchange. And, and um, luckily we get the chance to do that. And I think that that's a luxury. And that's what I would say, if there's any sort of politics to anything that I just said, is that, is that we we have to um, try and make that luxury available to everybody and not just those of us lucky enough to, to have the time and the space to do it. Yeah, and there's another really interesting question here from Alfonso for Hannah. Um, if there's any sort of e-therapy for those who cannot physically speak or visually see, if there's any research on this, or people that need some sort of translator to be able to access therapy, or if there's any programs that kind of do that. Yeah, um, so for, this is a great question. Thank you, Alfonso. So Marissa Cantor, who's a candidate at IPTAR in New York, has written really just tops beautifully about translation, medical translation, um, and I highly recommend her work. And she's she's both. She has a PhD and uh, is a psychoanalyst, a humanist PhD. So the, it's wonderful work. But um, yeah, so many of the apps do work with screen readers um, uh, and lots of early e-therapy and still now to this day, especially as it's become sort of concierge and pick and choose and appified, uh, you can just do audio or just do visual texting. Um, and so even though uh, these are not uh, sort of um, accessibly designed technologies, they're not um, made necessarily or rendered to be inclusive, the, the sort of um, appification, sort of uh, niche late stage capitalism does have this one silver lining. Um, so, so they do work, but in, in the early 90s, that was not part of any discussion I could find sort of in the discourse around it. It's a wonderful question. Thank you. That's super interesting. Um, and there's one for me from Alfonso too. Um, 
about democracy. Is there really any such thing as democracy in the process of the subject forming their identity online? Um, democracy here in reference to having a stake in claiming a virtual space that is the subject's own. That would be a big conversation. I think about democracy in general <laughs> um, and how that works. I don't know the democracy that I've lived in, not really democracy, um, mostly just oligarchs pretending there's some sort of democracy. Um, but anyways, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think, I think that the, this idea of, I don't know, it's twofold. It's like at the same time we have more agency, I feel, than we are told to believe about ourselves, um, in shaping ourselves and the world around us. Um, and I also think at the same time, we're more, much more interconnected than we're also told. Um, and I think that going back to Robert's point about can we use the internet non-narcissistically, I actually think I had, I had this other part in the paper that I took out because of time reasons. But um, when I talked about people feeling alienated, when they start realizing how kind of performative identity is and how there is this sort of masquerade going on, a lot of people find that to be like really depressing or they don't want to see it or they think of it badly or that people are so narcissistic as something negative. But what I've learned from really from being an analyst and working with people is like, this is just how people are. <laughs> and um, we shouldn't see it as negatively because that's just holding on to this fantasy of like some altruistic little worldview that we want to have where we're all like, you know, peace and love and we want to help each other, or whatever. And we have this like kind of altruistic idea of ourselves, especially people in this profession. I feel like, right, we're all like helpers. Um, but really, you know, I feel like playing to people's narcissism a little bit and showing that like, hey, we are all interconnected, which this virus is really showing everyone. And so if I help you, it's better for me too. And like, is that kind of selfish? Yeah, but also is that okay? Yeah, and it's kind of true. So, um, And I also feel like it helps us get out of this idea of like, that it's either us or them, this kind of splitting again, um, where it's like either I have the resources or you have the resources, because actually in my experience, I found that that's not really the case, that it's like when we kind of share resources or support everybody's kind of narcissistic dreams and ideals and like ways they want to be, then everybody is a bit better off. Um, I don't feel like it's necessary. I don't feel like me taking from you makes my life better. It actually makes everything worse. Um, so I don't know if that helped, but it's 11.30 p.m. here. So that's my rant. <laughs> okay, well, I'm just going to moderate then since everyone's quiet because there's still two more questions. Jacob, you have a question from Enda Burke. Jacob mentioned two of the splits, that between the dead and the living and the productive oh, yeah. and unproductive. As malleable, paranoid, schizoid split subjects, have we reacted paranoically to our own acceptance of the inevitable premature burial of the already dead, the non-productive to capital sucked of all possibility, the surplus value, speaking bodies without a social bind, the individual positive atoms of production ourselves steeped in the liberal infection that is the denial of individual death, the splitting dissonance resulting in an impotent individual outrage and collective political paralysis. 
Oh, that's, that's, that's a great comment. Uh, um, that's, yeah, that's, uh, I think I think those those things play a role. I think I think there is this kind of idea of um, of, of, of denial of, of, of kind of denial of death. Absolutely. Um, um, at the same time, I've also been kind of reading. If we kind of think about these kind of like protests against the lockdown yeah, that we've seen, like in many countries now, in the states as well, and and in Europe, and and those. Those people, they they know. I mean, they they kind of, you know, they they. I think they also know the the dangers and so on. And and I've seen kind of commentaries asking if that is like some kind of is that a death cult? Are they kind of do they have an actual kind of a, a sort of unconscious desire of, of, of death? Uh, I think this also plays a role here. I think it's probably more. A more common reaction is, is a denial of, of death, is a denial of fragility, because that's 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 how our culture operates. That's how humans often kind of respond. Um, but there is maybe also for some there is a there is a desire for death that that they that they um, that is unconscious to them. The death dive is real. Mm. <laughs> Thank you again, everyone. Yeah, that was really fun. Yeah, thank, thank you. Everyone. Um, I guess we do have two minutes. <laughs> One thing I loved is even we're seeing like the the super joys and also like the light problems of the virtual, right? Like Jamie and I got calls, my baby cries, mm. but also we're across four countries and too many time zones. And so, Vanessa, you get the champion for time zone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, this was really great, guys. Thank you so much. Are we going to switch us off now? Our <laughs> time is running out. Five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> All right, I guys. didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Countdown to nothing. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a panel on connection and community through technology presented at the Psychology of Global Crises Conference in May of 2020. For more, please visit the Psychology of Global Crises YouTube channel for videos of all the conference presentations. Search for hashtag PGC2020, PGC2020. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Trapard Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net.
Many thanks to our Patreon patrons. You too can support the podcast at our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Thank you so much for your support. By their force, our toe, the theater, and its double. I let you take over so I could experience your art. By present in the first piece, I was able to create as you. Accidental experiences when compared with the sublimation, the inner dialogue embellishing, screen printing, and multiplying countless numbers of soup cans and the Warhol was born in Pittsburgh to a working class family, city after college to pursue a career in advertising. He, Sabbath, London, Folger, 1992 in the work of Austin Osmondspare, an artist who works extensively bridging Yorkshire-based artist Val Denham, throbbing gristle early in her career, these groups, as well as for Mark Almond, that the mother, if still, it with hostility, in vain, the parents for the late understand that every Dr. Lymph, she's passing out, Dr. Benway. Adrenaline, Dr. Benway. The night porter shot it all up for kicks, Dr. Lymph. Dr. Lymph, I can't find her pulse. Dr. Benway picks up a suction cup on a stick out of the nearby toilet. Dr. Benway, just let me get that into the incision. I'm going to, by cutting in at random. How random is random, you know? More than you think, you know? Where you cut in. If fragments of newspaper be the poorest material for cut-ups, these treasures of world literature, as rendered into English, castrated, through marriage on their works. The dreams work like the cut, as one discovers are presumably the richest. I read the song of Solomon onto a tape and ran it back, cutting lines from some of Shakespeare's. They, mirror mask, I love you mirror, sonnets into it, at random. A third run back cut lines from the clan may also be the things of kindness. <laughs>